0: yeah Yeah. he's ready to have a whole meal here it was was great totally
1: gourmet
0: yeah you know what i mean the highest class of food that you can get
1: is what's in that bucket it's true john i I, we have all these people here
2: and people (laughs) oh i want to be so people and another thing that starts with p people
1: Oh, they pee and they
0: we won't say the other word okay what are you gonna do with the doo-doo do welcome a to out? the magnificast the podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm dean delaf i'm a phd student at the institute for christian studies in toronto and i'm your audio evangelist for the week <laughs>
2: huh? I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois, and I'm the proprietor of a vegetable stand, and I will sell you talking (laughs) vegetables. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's about as believable as the
0: clip that we just heard, which is from the Jim Baker show. Uh, If you're not familiar with Jim Baker, you're about to be Uh, over the last couple of weeks, We have been doing uh, a bunch of stuff on evangelicalism, talking about what it is, uh, where it came from, what it does, all that kind of thing. Um, This week, though, we're going to take a closer look at some specific evangelicals, or at least some specific wild Christians, whatever you want to call them, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. If you don't know who they are, they were really popular in the 70s and 80s, and then they fell out of the spotlight in a, a big scandal Tammy Faye died in 2007, but Jim is back on TV selling huge buckets of the worst food that you could ever see to get you through the coming apocalypse. Uh, During the Trump presidency, Jim Baker has turned into a surreal kind of doomsday preacher, threatening civil war and eating macaroni out of a shovel on his TV show.
2: Yeah, it's probably worth saying that 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 clip has been edited by the internet artist uh, Vic (laughs) Berger. So it's not actually quite that surreal... Mm, I don't know. It probably is pretty surreal. The only thing he did was changed music.
0: (laughs) It's actually probably more surreal to watch it without the editing because it's just a long, boring strain of somebody trying to sell you gigantic vats of industrial grade like uh, cottage cheese and stuff.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, to get into the Bakers more, we talked to Martin Wendell Jones, a journalist and writer in Toronto about his article, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, A Scandal of the Self. We'll post a link to it in the show notes because you got to read it. It's required reading. (laughs) You'll get no points in this magnificent class if you don't do the required reading. It's super good, though. You definitely should do it. Um, You can also find lots more Martin content at martinwendelljones.contently.com. All right, let's go to Martin.
0: This week on The Magnificast, we have a really special guest, Martin Wendell-Jones. If you don't know Martin, he has a, a, a number of really great things out there that you can read. Um, this doesn't sound that impressive, but in fact it is. Uh, <laughs> Martin has like a, a hodgepodge of r- just really fun articles kind of floating around the internet. Um, I guess maybe the best way to put it is every time I hear that there's a new article by Martin that's out there, I get pretty excited and I feel like I need to kind of move some things around in my schedule to make some reading time uh most recently i've been reading martin's newsletter which is also very fun uh a lot of stuff having to do with uh parenting and um seeing your kid grow up uh maybe i'll let you say more about that in a minute here wendell but before we dive in um would you like to introduce yourself and just kind of say a little bit about who you are and what you're into
1: yeah Thank you guys so much for having me on. Uh, My name is Martin Wendell Jones, and uh, I'm a writer and journalist. I live up here in Toronto. I'm an American and Dutch citizen, an expat living um, up here in the north. And uh, yeah, I'm really interested in literary journalism about religion. That's kind of the area where I've been trying to do a lot of freelance work over the last few years for a variety of publications. Um, And yeah, I have a newsletter about being a new dad. Uh, Fox Jonathan Jones is eight months old and one day. Cool,
2: congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we
1: uh, love him. He's quite a precocious kid, physically speaking. He's like pretty big and physically capable, which is a little bit frightening for me, thinking that we might (laughs) be raising an athlete, seeing as that's just completely outside of my own experience of life, so, but yeah.
2: (laughs) That's also my dad experience. My son is extremely uh, physically adept and uh, could probably beat me up if he tried, so (laughs) It, it only gets worse.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard <laughs> those Rowdy boys. Um well, <laughs> whenever we have a guest on the show, uh we always ask them to give kind of like an elevator pitch for what we're going to talk about this week. And out of all the very many many things that you have written, Martin, one that I really love, coming back to every once in a while is an essay that you wrote about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Some really wild Christian folks, if you don't know who they are, um, I guess you'll learn more in the next hour or so. Uh, but Martin, you wrote this essay called Jim and Tammy Fay Baker, A Scandal of the Self for the Washington Examiner. Um, for folks who've never read it or maybe have no idea even who the Bakers are, could you just give us like a really brief kind of summary of why you wanted to write about these two characters and uh, maybe just generally some of the highlights for you in putting it together?
1: Yeah, um real quick i'll just mention that the piece was originally for the weekly standard but i think it's been reprinted in the examiner i don't know if that's a big deal but it's uh seeing as it's now a defunct publication but Anyway, something to edit out (laughs) later. Um, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker are fascinating um, religious characters who just absolutely dominated the uh, American sort of spiritual and religious imagination in the 1970s and 80s. And then they completely flamed out and uh, have basically receded from public consciousness. Um, Tammy Faye became an icon in the drag community. She's beloved of people such as RuPaul. And Jim Baker has returned after going to jail for fraud, among other things, um, and is now trying to rebuild the utopian community that he had originally started as the latter part of his ministry. Um, and as part of that, he is selling uh, freeze-dried survival food and is fixated on the apocalypse and is a big Trump guy. So uh, Jim and Tammy Faye really represent, I think, the sort of intersecting currents of a number of um, really important themes and. American religious history and uh, are a really fascinating sort of window into the uh, American character more generally.
2: Yeah, that's so cool. Um, It's so weird how I don't know anything about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Um, I guess I'm I'm young enough so that it was never sort of a a moment for me. Um, I only know him as that weird guy on YouTube that I see selling, yeah, freeze dried macaroni and rice and uh, acting like a big weirdo. so it's interesting to learn more about him and to kind of know about the cultural history that's going on there. Yeah, I, I guess maybe could you say a little bit about why this story is important? Like, why worry about Jim Baker at all? Like, what, what what's sort of the hook here that got you interested?
0: Yeah,
1: I see in um, Jim Baker actually a really uh, important sort of prefiguring of a lot of the stuff we actually are seeing with the current American president. Um, I think that his relationship to the media, his understanding of himself, um, these are all things I think are reflected pretty clearly in Trump. And I think that the sort of spiritual side of the current president um, in this way is something that's sort of um, underexplored, I suppose. But um, more generally, uh, I see the Bakers as being a perfect representation of some really big themes in American religious history, as I said before, but specifically this sort of continuing legacy of religious enthusiasm, which is a sort of post-Protestant, Um, European spiritual phenomenon uh, that sort of de-centered doctrine and theology in favor of um, deeply personal religious experience. And um, that's a trend that we see continued in an American context in really interesting ways through originally um, revivalist itinerant preachers and um, Wesleyanism and then Pentecostalism, which gave rise to the bakers. So forms of just ecstatic um religious faith uh focusing on signs and wonders miraculous healings the bakers are sort of in that lineage which is part of a kind of um it's almost part of a shadow history i guess of uh, american culture explored by folks like gilbert selde in a book called the stammering century which is one of my very favorites um, so he continues kind of this almost like a shadow tradition in american culture Um, that I think is hugely influential with um, huge sections of the population. I mean, thinking again of Trump, uh, Trump has a huge basis of support uh, among Pentecostals and charismatics, which is a story that I haven't really seen um, made much of. But, I mean, folks who prophesied about him and saw him as being actually, you know, God's trumpet, they said. You know, you can look at places like Charisma Magazine or Bill Johnson at Bethel Church, uh, sort of a abiding interest of mine. These are all places that have really gotten on board with the Trump phenomenon. And I think it's because Trump has a sort of intuitive, uh, maybe like rhetorical sense for some of the same themes that Baker had in his own ministry, which endeared him, which endeared Baker originally to so many people, millions of people ultimately around the world, and also Trump to his hardcore base of supporters.
0: Oh, thanks. That's a really great way to introduce the conversation because we definitely want to come around to the Trump stuff. I mean, we've been trying on the show the last few episodes to contextualize evangelicalism and the contemporary moment. And this is such a unique angle on it. So we'll ask you a lot more about Trump probably in a minute. Um but I guess just to make sure everybody's kind of along for the ride, uh, one of the the most interesting things about your essay is like what Matt was saying earlier, uh, you do this great job contextualizing Jim and Tammy Faye Baker far beyond just like the, you know, Jim Baker's return to, um, to TV and that sort of a thing. So could you lay out maybe just in broad strokes, like the highs and lows of the Baker saga? Uh, you know, what are what's kind of the yeah, I guess the the brief timeline of of what we're looking at in terms of their their moment in American history.
1: Yeah, so Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, um, you know, they were born in uh, Pentecostal contexts in uh, the northern U.S., and they met when attend- they were attending an Assemblies of God Bible school um, in the early 60s, and then they dropped out after they got married. And uh, around this time in the early 60s, they met this guy who's like, hey, listen, Jim and Tammy Faye, I'm going to buy a yacht that used to be owned by Errol Flynn, and I'm going to go up and down the Amazon River preaching to the natives, and you should join me. So they committed a lot of money to this venture, and then obviously they got swindled. The guy disappeared. And so at that point, they became itinerant healing evangelists, and they basically uh, did a circuit around the South, um, you know, going to different churches and preaching and um, you know, sort of trying to bring on the gifts of the Spirit, which... Charismatics believe, you know, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, sort of recalling Pentecost. um, There are special spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues and miraculous healings that, um, you know, sort of doled out um, among believers. But so they were discovered in 1965, so mid-60s, by Pat Robertson. And they ended up getting into television at this point. Tammy Faye, born performer, a natural performer, always wanted to be on television. And Jim Baker was quite a performer as well. they ended up helping to found the Christian Broadcasting Network. Ended up breaking with Pat Robertson, and then met the uh, Paul and Jan Crouch, the Crouches, and then helped move to California in the early 70s and helped them to found the Trinity Broadcasting Network. So they hand in founding two hugely important and influential Christian television broadcasting networks. And then uh, they went to Charlotte, North Carolina after breaking then with the Crouches, and they hosted a um a telethon and ended up having like this experience of just like uh incredible revival. Apparently there was lots of speaking in tongues and you know like a sort of um quite an experience and they ended up deciding to stay there in Charlotte and that's where they ended up uh setting up shops. So by the mid-70s they have um relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina. They have bought an old furniture store and set up a makeshift studio to start their own thing. And um this is when ptl begins so the best single source for information on the bakers and what i've derived a lot of narrative from is historian john wigger's book ptl the rise and fall of jim and Tammy faye baker's evangelical empire so it's really the book is focused on their television ministry which is what they're primarily known for but there's also quite a lot about jim and Tammy faye's biography in this so throughout the rest of the 70s they continue building the television network They end up investing in their own satellite uplink, which gives them the ability to broadcast all over the world to audiences in dozens of countries. They end up reaching an audience of millions. And at this point, um, you know, they start uh, getting into sort of like uh, sketchy sort of financial appeals, especially as Jim Baker develops kind of, you know, in solid American tradition, a kind of utopian vision for what they could build here in uh, North Carolina. So at this point, they end up building out a Christian theme park called Heritage USA, which really ended the 70s, beginning of the 80s. Heritage USA is a theme park that they found that ends up turning into resort. Jim Baker hopes at some point that will grow to house 30,000 permanent residents. And um, this thing really grew in uh, 1986, I believe it is. Wigger reports that, Heritage USA was the third most visited theme park in America after, uh, I think, Disneyland and Disney World. So it became absolutely massive. It was a vacation destination for the sorts of people who watched Jim and Tammy Faye's show. The uh, people could buy timeshares and, you know, this like beautiful hotel that they had built on the grounds. One of the things they got in trouble for was overselling the timeshare. So people were, you know, basically promised like a certain number of nights they could stay at Heritage USA every year. And they would call ahead to try and book time and they would basically find no availability for like three years because there were so many people who had bought these um and that's one of the things that led to um an investigation by the fcc and um a number of other uh you know investigations that uh led to the downfall of the bakers in the late 80s jim baker went to prison for fraud tammy faye divorced him ended up marrying a contractor who went to prison himself for um, bankruptcy fraud. (laughs) It's just like an absolute mess. Everyone who's involved in Heritage USA and the television ministry, things just kind of fell apart. And also during this time, um, uh, Jerry Falwell and Jimmy Swaggart sort of move in, uh, knives out to try and acquire and scavenge, um, PTL for their own purposes. Um, in light of the, uh, accusations against Jim Baker. And, you know, that part of that was also a sex scandal. So it was the late 80s when all of this sort of fell apart and when uh, the Bakers kind of disappeared for a while.
2: There's so many interesting things to say about that story. And um, I'd love I'd love to get into. Man, I want to know so much what a Christian theme park would look like. I guess it's my big my big wonder. Um, mm-hmm. And I can I can figure that out by myself, I guess. But uh, <laughs> TV is a huge part of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's story. Um, being, I don't know, maybe I guess you'd call them televangelists, but maybe there's a, a better word for what they are particularly. But um, yeah, I don't know. How does TV fit into their idea of Christianity? I guess what was the impetus for being on television for them?
1: Yeah, there's a great documentary called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which was made in the 2000s. And in that documentary, she talks about her relationship to the camera and what it meant to her. And she said, it's not really a camera. It's actually people. It's people to, you know, to connect with. Um Tammy Faye was a, you know, just this amazing font of sincerity, just absolutely guileless. She just wanted to be on TV. There's a book by Nancy Eisenberg called White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. And um, in this book, she talks about Tammy Faye as someone who claimed to derive her signature style from Lucille ball and a mini mouse. And Roger Ebert is also quoted in this book as judging Tammy Faye to have spent more of her life on television than any other living person. So this is really something that was actually deeply important to her. Um, And uh, when it comes to their ministry, there's actually the way that they approach their show in the early days. The PTL club is perfectly resonant, actually, with um, the sort of early 19th century camp meeting revival preaching that really um, launched sort of the like Methodist sort of um, uh, revivalism in the United States. So. Preachers back then, typically uh, from a variety of denominations, would uh, read sermons just from manuscripts that they had prepared. And the Methodist itinerant preachers were really remarkable in for abandoning the notes and preaching extemporaneously. Um, Charles Wesley is described as an experimentalist in uh, the Selby's book I mentioned earlier, the ring century. Um, or sorry, no, uh, Charles Wesley, whom I mentioned earlier, was described in a book by Monsignor Ronald Knox um, called Enthusiasm, as someone who's a great spiritual experimentalist who, while he was preaching, would sort of gauge the reaction in his audience to the things he was saying, and he would adjust his approach based on the feedback that he was getting. And this is kind of, uh, you know, this lineage of, you know, sort of extemporaneous improvisational showmanship is something that leads right up to Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker deciding to never have scripts and to ad-lib their entire show in the early days. And to sort of take a kind of anarchic approach to how they would actually do the TV show. There was one episode that was filmed entirely on a (laughs) merry-go-round. There was a guy in a dog costume who vomited in his suit, like, (laughs) um, (laughs) because of this choice. So they, uh, You know, they're in this new medium. It's in the, you know, like sort of early days of satellite distribution. So almost anything is possible. And they're really innovators when it comes to that technology and that method of distribution. And they really are just trying all sorts of things, all of it for the purpose in the early days um, of, I think, a sincere spiritual intention. They wanted to create a sort of, um, you know, a source of religious programming that would provide a real alternative to uh, the secular media that they both um, were aware of and enjoyed. Um, the PTL club was originally modeled on, you know, uh, late shows like Johnny Carson. It was really, um, you know, a place where it would just have celebrities in and they had a, you know, quite a large number of celebrities from all different walks of life, um, come in, uh, and, you know, speak on the show. And some of them, uh, they earned some, you know, they, they got some blowback for it. Like, uh, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler was on the show at one point. Um, you know, and I think he even took Jim Baker on his plane, like. They would have anyone, um, you know, who was sort of, you know, had achieved celebrity status on the show to, to talk.
0: Yeah, there's so much going on there. Um, Like Matt keeps saying, there's so many pieces to just keep pulling apart. (laughs) Maybe we'll circle back to them in a moment. But I feel like uh, in the interest of um, getting to some of the the weirdest ones, uh, I want to pivot to kind of some of the recent years that Jim Baker has uh, been reinventing himself, as you mentioned earlier, as this person rebranding almost along with the Trump presidency as this doomsday apocalypticist, you know, selling these big vats of like horrible food uh, to his audience. Um, It's pretty unsettling. I mean, Matt Matt and I were just watching some admittedly edited, uh, specifically edited videos of Jim Baker. But nevertheless, uh, I feel like you probably don't have to edit that hard to uh, draw out what's kind of disturbing about it. So anyway, um, maybe we could start at the end of your essay and sort of work backwards. So you have this amazing paragraph um, where you close it out, where you write... What Baker, prophet of that religion, now promises is a survival cataclysm. Survivable cataclysm. Bunkering down with the Lord, we will emerge to find ourselves free again of the society that restricts our freedom. Prepare, prepare, Baker says. Listen to me. Send checks. The apocalypse is coming and most of humankind will be destroyed. But you can make it. Try the macaroni and remember, God loves you. He really does. I love everything about that paragraph. It's so masterfully done. Uh, I guess, though, I don't I don't know what to ask about it, except to say, like, what the hell is going on here? You know, like, what is this uh, phenomenon? And, you know, how does this maybe continue or depart from the Baker phenomenon you were just talking about, this kind of, you know, PTL Club, Minnie Mouse-style approach?
1: Yes. Um, I really... So with this paragraph in particular, I was trying to capture, I guess, uh, some of the sensibility that I still see in Jim Baker and that I think has been consistent for several decades with him at this point. Um, a book that I really like on this subject is called The American Religion by Harold Bloom, which I refer to elsewhere in the piece. Um, Harold Bloom, basically, his thesis is essentially that the American sort of um, spiritual genius and the American religious imagination is defined not by... Um, anything like a doctrinally robust Christianity, but something far closer to a sort of uh, Gnosticism or a Gnostic paradigm. And by that, he means not only, you know, sort of a secret knowledge that's transmitted, um, you know, by a sort of group of elect, but also, uh, you know, essentially a a metaphysical intuition. There's a way in which um, Americans have a sense of themselves as uh you know their being a pure self like a kind of you know like the real me that exists um and that uh you know essentially is uh coequal with god in a sense um you know uncreated this uncreated spark and um the self uh in this paradigm cannot actually be sullied by its sort of engagements in the material world. So notions like sin, you know, the things you actually go up and do, like, you know, when Baker is accused of fraud or like the, the sex scandal, um, all these accusations, um, he's basically, uh, able to dissociate his real self from those actions in the world and, and kind of, you know, like brush them off. Uh, you know, it's the kind of classic public apology. That's actually a non-apology of you know that really wasn't me that's not the real me um i wasn't myself this is something that's i mean that's slightly different but kind of in the same vein so i see this uh spiritual paradigm which uh you know sort of takes over a kind of like more traditionally christian vocabulary instead of concepts as being the thing that's kind of the you know at the center of the baker phenomenon and also to some degree with the trump phenomenon um but for baker there's uh you know there's a shocking passage actually in one of his books. It's his memoir that he released after he got out of prison, which is called I Was Wrong. And in the memoir, he talks about the sex scandal, which, since I haven't mentioned it yet, I'll just briefly recap. There was a woman who was a big fan of his ministry. A meeting was arranged between her and Baker. And in that meeting, he ended up forcing himself upon her. And then ended up, um, you know, uh, in light of that, um, uh, someone who was sort of opposed to him in his ministry, um, you know, kind of. Uh, Use that for leverage um, against him. And uh, this was related to, but basically, there was money provided for a cover up by the contractor, coincidentally, that Tammy Faye ended up marrying. And that cover up money, I think something to the tune of maybe $260,000 or $265,000. Um, the existence of that money was disclosed to the press and uh, reporting by Charles. Uh, Shepherd and others um, ended up earning the Pulitzer Prize and helping to bring down Baker's ministry. But so in his in his memoir, he talks about the haunting encounter and about how you know it was wrong. And he met with this Christian counselor, who said, you know, to him, uh, yeah, I just you know I can tell you just need forgiveness. Um, you need forgiveness for your, yourself. Um, you need forgiveness from God. You need forgiveness from Jessica. You have to sort this out, and then you'll be free. And so two days after Jim Baker has raped this poor woman, he basically absolves himself. And then this same person tells him not to tell his wife, Tammy Faye, and he doesn't tell her for six years. And this is kind of the, you know, like something that I think is related to like his later sensibility. There's a way in which like these things that he gets up to, like the fraud, deceiving his followers, all this stuff, he's able to just like brush off, you know, say that that wasn't really him. And he also at one point in his memoir talks about how you know, figuring out who he really was, like his true self was an important task that he had to undertake when he was in prison. And uh, of course, as he like sort of uh, has this prolonged engagement with himself and also with scripture, he ends up converting this sort of apocalypticism and he just finds his next grift, essentially. Um, But this, uh, I see, you know, like these elements is kind of linked. There's also a sense of, uh, you know, again, on the level of a kind of spiritual or metaphysical intuition, a sort of, sense of himself and also that a sense that his followers have that um you know they are in a sense elect even if they are not by any means doctrine or calvinist they still have a sense of god's special blessing which connects us back to other themes in american history you know the sense of manifest destiny and still the kind of chauvinism that characterizes the united states position vis-a-vis the rest of the world in so many ways um but i see all of this is expressed in a sort of unique constellation in the person of jim baker um to this day
2: yeah um I want to kind of dig into that true self of Jim Baker a bit more. Um but maybe um maybe first uh with his relationship to Donald Trump sort of post-prison. Um man, I, I think everything I see about uh, about Jim Baker uh that is so surprising and weird to me is usually uh when he's talking about Donald Trump and kind of expressing his extremely um theological like theologized version of Trump as president and sort of like other kind of end times figure. Um so there's like this video of uh, of Jim Baker on the election night in 2016. And uh, Jim Baker, you know, he's hosting a show. He's doing his usual thing. He's selling big buckets of macaroni to people. Um, but he's like anticipating Trump's victory. And he said things like, um, you know, if Donald Trump, if if Donald Trump wins, it shows that he's really God's candidate, because like, how else could he possibly win? Um, and then there's another instance in 2017. Um, when Jim Baker said that, you know, if Donald Trump is impeached by the Democrats that, uh, it would start a civil war, Christians would start a civil war specifically. So, mm-hmm. um, kind of riffing off these ideas of, you know, his true self and his apocalypticism. Like what, what is going on with Jim Baker and his, like a fascination, his fascination with Donald Trump.
1: That's a great question. And, uh, I, I mean, here I'm on, um, really would you just have to speculate, uh, I I do think that there's a kind of uh, consonance between their characters in many ways. Uh, Jim Baker, you know, is a consummate um, showman, uh, you know, capacity developed over decades on television. I mean, he and Tammy Faye, you know, like their children really did grow up on television. Like they, you know, they spent so much time with the PTL club in front of cameras. uh, The children are still dealing with that legacy. It was something obviously unchosen for them, and I think that this sort of you know theme park that he created, this you know like escapist utopian fantasy, um, sort of fed into that um, as well. This uh, you know, there's a way in which um, Trump, I think, has access to the same sort of uh, idiom. I suppose I see Trump's um, you know I see Trump as being able to make a rhetorical appeal. To Americans who share this sort of um, not the sensibility, but the same kind of intuition about themselves that Baker does, and who maybe have not brought that to a level of you know like explicit elaboration, but there's a way in which Trump is able to look at people who you know they feel unjustly maligned, they're really uncomfortable by a lot of the cultural conversations and the reckonings that are happening, having to do with um, sexual violence and abuse, having to do with race and um, you know violence against racialized communities. Um, You know, these people, uh, Trump speaks to, you know, just like seas of white faces and their red hats, and he points at them and he basically intimates, I know who you are. I know that you're good people and I know that they have you figured wrong and I am your man. Like there's a kind of, um, I think, uh, like sort of immediate connection he's able to make with his audiences. I think draws, you know, draws water through the same roots um, that, you know, Baker's appeal did. And Baker as well, Um, you know, when he was first being investigated by like the FCC, um, he mounted a full sort of like counter investigation campaign and it even had its own theme song. (laughs) It was a song called Enough is Enough. And that sort of um, indignation, you know, and that sense of, uh, you know, being at war with these outer forces, um, you know, who are sort of gunning for him and persecuting him, uh, that sense of, you know, like, persecution and being singled out um was something that he made a lot of money on (laughs) um it was uh, extremely rhetorically effective and uh, obviously we see the same kinds of things in in trump but i think both of them have that sense of being fundamentally misunderstood and also um you know people who are really just uh in a way kind of sure of themselves Uh, there are certain questions i don't think either of them has ever been forced to ask about his own um presence and way in the world and that's you know at this point we're talking about two people who just in terms of their private lives i imagine um have uh you know uh left kind of you know a trail of injuries and casualties um, among the people they've known
0: yeah i'm gonna have to remember that enough is enough campaign for uh, when someone finally takes down the corruption scandal the magnificast um that'll be how i ward it off uh, Well, you know, you, you're doing this work, uh, not only on the bakers, but on, as you said earlier, um, kind of religious journalism related to the United States. And um, I always hesitate to put people in the speculation seat, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, you know you're you're drawing these parallels between Trump and Jim Baker that I think are are really helpful and i wonder what you think of the discourse around Donald Trump and the evangelical support for him because a lot of people especially after he was elected you know it seemed almost as if there was article after article being published about how either it is not surprising at all that evangelicals support Donald Trump or uh, kind of hand-wringing about the hypocrisy or alleged hypocrisy of evangelicals supporting Donald Trump. And having kind of discovered these echoes of resonances between the character of Trump and Baker, I wonder what you react to that kind of media story. I mean, is there any kind of light that you think this investigation that you've done shows on on that story?
1: That's... uh... Yeah, that's a difficult question,
0: <laughs> and we're definitely operating at this point by my pay grade. But I'll uh,
1: venture a few things. Um, I find John Fee's book "Believe Me" about evangelical support for Trump helpful um, in this way. I think that a lot of um, ev- the evangelical affinity for Trump has been kind of fear-based. I think um, you know, from you know just the people filling the pews in your average midwestern church to Uh, you know, university presidents, like there's a kind of anxiety about the institutions that they love being, um, you know, under threat from uh, liberal politicians um, when it comes to like tax exempt status and a number of other sort of related issues. Um, And I think that that fear is certainly a motivating force for some of the people who Voted for him, but there is something else that's happening too. And I think that this, you know, the story of the Bakers, I think, does sort of prepare the way for, um, you know, the story of Trump's positive appeal. So not just the fear based appeal, but the positive appeal. And I think that there is a way in which he is able to sort of immediately connect with people on that level um, who would identify as evangelicals. I think that there are uh, distinctions that could be meaningfully drawn. I think that. Um, I mean, you know, I still attend a Presbyterian church that's on the more conservative side theologically. And um, I think that there is a difference between, uh, you know, sort of folks who sort of fit the profile of like my pastors there, for instance, versus, uh, you know, what um, Alan Jacobs in a recent Atlantic piece called God and Country Believers. But I think that there's not really a lot of room for, you know, sort of comfortable um, distancing here. I think that there is kind of uh, also in evangelical intellectual commentary uh, that kind of floats over and is sort of has an epiphenomenal relationship with, you know, obviously a base that's been energized and that is really going a different direction from a lot of folks like Jacobs. And, you know, people were trying to carve out more of a place for a kind of um, political centrism for uh, evangelicals. But um, yeah, ultimately, I do think that there is something that evangelicals responded to in Trump's appeal that uh, goes beyond the content of what he said, since it's never really about the content per se, um, you know, on the level of the text, but really about more uh, a message that he communicates, um, you know, sort of uh, in subtextually, I suppose. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I find it a little bit heartbreaking, you know, the statistic that 81% of evangelicals who voted, um, And there's a, you know, there's a lot of rot in the American uh, sort of evangelical space that's been brought to light. I think ultimately that will be a good thing. But it's also, um, yeah, it's difficult to watch. I don't, um, I don't enjoy that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, me either. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Well, we've talked a lot about Jim Baker specifically, but maybe we can turn an eye to Tammy Faye for a second. Um, Well, and Jim, Jim, too. But uh, Tammy Faye is an interesting character in herself and worth our attention. Um, You write that Tammy Faye was one of the first Christians to embrace the gay community during the AIDS crisis Um, in your in your article. You write uh, the drag queen RuPaul, who narrates the documentary, uh, the documentary you mentioned earlier was a longtime friend of Tammy Faye's and described her in an interview as an ascended master, someone who's understood the complexities of life and made a conscious decision to focus on the light, which is a, really a sweet description. Uh, mm-hmm. Tammy Faye, uh, went, uh she ended up dying of cancer in 2007, and to this day, she's regarded as an icon of camp. That was sort of your and the end of your quote there. Um, so if that's, how tammy's you know true self is remembered, which is um, pretty good, actually, what do you think about the opposite direction of Jim uh, becoming sort of a Trump supporter, threatening civil war, preparing for a literal apocalypse, and so on? like how do we make sense of them as a couple i suppose
1: yeah, that's it I mean I think uh you know like the fact that they were divorced when Jim went to prison is uh, that's really important. I think that um, there was a real split in their relationship, and it had to do with his sort of utopian dream i mean this is sort of a. I guess it's kind of a microcosm for a lot of the like sort of political trends that um you know it's related to uh more recently but you know like jim baker really did want to create a sort of um this you know not just a vacation destination but really a living community of people who are able to just exist in kind of a you know an artificial world of of religious fantasy um you know they wanted, and again, they're also like taking the symbols of the sort of um, the American religious past, and and using them, and sort of like reaffirming like this is sort of at the heart of American identity. So they were creating this giant. Um, they built this giant barn where they would have. You know, Camp Meeting USA was one of the programs that they would film there. That visitors to this theme park would, um, you know, they would all uh, fill out like the seats, and they would have these big revival style meetings in this um, giant barn and. Baker had planned this old Jerusalem village, he called it, um, you know, it was supposed to be built out with period detail. There are a couple of places online, if you search for photos of Heritage USA, you can find some pretty interesting photo sets of these, um, you know, of like the theme park that had been built as it's like sort of um, become derelict and then sort of, you know, like <laughs> entered a period of decay with like vines growing up over it and the sort of, you know, the folks have come in and then tried to like, you know, take bits and pieces of it and, and sort of revitalize them. Um, There's some really interesting, like, um, photo essays about, you know, the sort of, like, the dereliction of Heritage USA, which I find kind of amusing. But anyway, it was really over this, um, you know, like, Jim's desire to create this, um, you know, to to create and build out this community, um, you know, where the TV network only played a small part. And Tammy Faye's whole, you know, like, her reason for life was to be on TV and to just keep those program's going um and to really yeah she wanted to connect with people in the documentary which is really worth seeing narrated by RuPaul the eyes of Tammy Faye um, you know she just tried to she does try to get back on television and makes a number of unsuccessful pitches but they're all so earnest and they're all so sweet like one of them is called she pitches a show called Tammy's Terrific Teens (laughs) and the purpose of the show is just for her to hang out with teenagers and to you know like talk about their choices and just she, you know, she says in her pitch for this show, like, I just, uh, you know, like I want teens to know that, you know, like they're adults who care for them and I just want them to feel affirmed. I know that's, you know, it's just something that teenagers don't get a lot of. So there's just this, this, um, you know, like, uh, this spirit that she has, I guess that, um, I find really compelling. And, you know, I think that she's a, she's a really interesting figure. And, um, people were also, uh, really cruel to her. I mean, she's a a very interesting sort of um like her public persona i don't know that there was a huge difference between it and and you know like um sort of the way in which she experienced her own life um i'm not sure how to draw the distinctions very finely in this area but there's a way in which um she was uh you know she was just classically irrepressible and what's really interesting to me about her is you know the the like fake eyelashes and um, other things, she talks about this in the documentary. She describes it as being really her, you know, like, that's just me. That's really me. <laughs> um, like her makeup, you know, which she became sort of infamous for, especially in the 80s. It was just kind of a symbol of this sort of vulgar venality of the bakers as they were, you know, like taking more and more money away from the ministry and buying homes in places like Miami and all of this stuff that they used to develop just this lavish lifestyle, surrounding themselves with fixers. Like she... Um, I think was treated uh, very cruelly in some cases by the press. You know, in that documentary, there are t-shirts um, that have the inscription, I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall and it's just like sort of the imprint of a clown face of her makeup, just like smeared, you know, like mascara and like like dripping, you know, like blush and, and different colors and stuff. Um, but there was, uh, you know, all of that is kind of, um, it makes sense that that's the way in which she was treated, I suppose, especially during that time, but there's something, really different. I think that was happening, uh, for her and, uh, she and, and Jim, I think really starting in the eighties really went in very different directions. And this also has to do with Jim Baker's, um, sexual identity and, um, his sort of coming to terms with, uh, you know, his apparent bisexuality, um, according to, you know, like Wigger's book and, um, Baker even speculates about this side of himself and his memoir, I was wrong. Um, since he was uh, when he was a young man was abused by an older member of his church. And he sort of like links that experience to his later um, sort of recreational interest and intimate relations with other men. But
2: that's really interesting that you would take the time to kind of like go through and really sift out, you know, what a what a true like the the true character of these um, kind of larger than life people. This is a probably impossible to answer question, but I thought it'd be interesting to hear what you'd say just the same. Um, Jim Baker's reputation is sort of forever scarred by being a swindler, right? By being guilty of uh, taking money and all these other, like, I mean, sexual violence and everything else. Um, But uh, it's kind of interesting, though, that he did want to sort of start a utopian type of Christian community. That's like a really interesting part of the story. And Okay, again, I'm still fixated on the theme park part of it. I can't get around that in my head. <laughs> um, but do you think that do you think that Jim Baker's like desire for for that for Heritage USA was like um, in any way legitimately like driven by his Christianity? Do you think it was just like another sort of like gimmick that he was going to use to get more money? Do you think that's a distinguish like something that you can even distinguish between? I don't know. Uh, do you think mm-hmm. that Jim? Uh, Jim Baker was like legitimately interested in um, the ministry or was he just kind of like a I don't know a sleazy guy that's a great question or both
1: (laughs) yeah I think uh, as with as with so many things I think that yeah it's just a sort of uh, you can't put this in the centrifuge and you know sort of separate out the elements I think that there was sort of an earnest desire to build you know, like a a community that I think was rooted in this sort of, um, you know, like his uh, religious faith. Um, I think there also was obviously like a you know a, a series of opportunities for making quite a lot of money and withdrawing a lot of money on the basis of that venture. Um, and it's really with the building of the of the theme park that they get into really serious financial trouble. Like, there, um, you know, Baker had always been sort of. Um, erratic in how he would plan his projects um people who were on staff at ptl would keep monitors in their workrooms and watch the show as it was being taped live so that they could know what their next project was (laughs) like he would announce things on the air without consulting anyone and that continued after you know he spent all this money on developing this gigantic um, property into this community and this really uh it's hard for me to sort of uh I guess, solidly characterize, you know, like his motivations, I suppose, but it does connect him again to, um, you know, this, an earlier period in American history. And again, I'll refer to Gilbert Seldie's book, The Stammering Century, which covers the 19th century is kind of a, provides a shadow history of American, um, life in that period. And, you know, he focuses on the strivers and the, you know, the quacks and the, the and the, um, you know, other people like, um, who who also had these sort of uh, utopian visions Um, as the american frontier was expanding westward by you know like by means of violence and disease and much else in the space would be cleared out by these incursions um, people in the early 19th century saw opportunities for creating um, for founding and creating communities such as new harmony in indiana or the oneida community where groups of people who were like-minded religiously would, um, come into, uh, you know, like these small communal arrangements, support themselves economically and, and live out, you know, uh, what they saw as being the, you know, the, sort of the, um, the way of heaven. Um, and I think that Baker had a little bit of that, but sort of, uh, you know, he wasn't a great visionary or thinker. There really was just a sort of sense of, um, you know, culture is sort of being degraded. We're moving in these secular directions. Uh, we need to recover the sort of Christian heart of the United States. And that's, uh, you know, Heritage USA is a place where Christian families can come and find sort of like, be among their own people and find their own culture represented. And that's, a, that's really tricky to, even if there were sincere motivations underwriting that, obviously, there are um, very complicated ideas sort of at play in that and problematic ideas um, of various sorts. But, uh, I do. I do think that um, yeah, there was a mix of sincerity and guile in his original plan for uh, for the park, and he, you know, he was just uh, such a dominant personality that there were really few people who were capable of standing in his way when he started down that path.
0: Uh, I'm really curious to hear you maybe tie that into the turn that Jim Baker has now, because it seems maybe I'm misunderstanding it in a bit, but it seems to me that um, the Heritage uh, theme park. In many respects, is this utopic vision, like you're just saying, you know, it it, it carries on this strange uh, American tradition of building these tiny utopias, even if it's you know in an extremely commercialized way or something like that. Um, but it seems now the there's certainly some of that in Jim Baker's approach um, on television these days, right? It's it's gathering together at least like-minded people and uh, nervous about se- secularism, etc. But it's almost like um, the refusal of of utopia and the like, the affirmation of dystopia. It's sort of accepted the loss, and you know, it's trying to carve out some kind of weird remnant. Like it is literally a, a, an apocalyptic vision, um, more than you know, like like a filmic kind of vision. Like you you would emerge from the bunker from Jim Baker's bunker, having been you know fed and nourished by these decisions into some kind of future. Who knows what? So you know, it's it's wild because. Lots of folks are talking about this moment in U.S. politics as a a weird transition time for evangelicalism, and it seems like Jim Baker is uh, trying to figure that out, too. And I wonder what you make of, right now, evangelicalism is really at the height of its cynicism and the height of its power, right? Like, it's holding all the cards, um, and yet at the same time, Jim Baker is is choosing this moment to feel like now's the time to invest in building the bunker. Um, What do you make of that transition?
1: Yeah. um, Gosh. Yeah, there's really a lot there. Um, I will say that while Baker is investing in, or it, while Baker is hawking these wares, you know, like that, you know, the survival food and all this like freeze-dried stuff, he also is building out this 700-acre property in Missouri to sort of like, you know, as a kind of almost a reprisal of Heritage USA, where, um, you know, there are people who, I think there are are full-time residents there, but he's sort of, as he did with Heritage USA, there was like a main building um, and then outside that building, there were like uh, these like little alleyways with like shops and storefronts, and it was meant to be kind of like I don't know, almost like Stars Hollow from the Gilmore Girls, like this kind of like impossibly sort of perfect little American community, like sheltered. And and um, the interesting thing to me about Morningside, the place where he's filming these segments where he hawks all this food, is that you have the same sort of Main Street feel, but it's it's all indoors now, <laughs> from at least from the look of it. Like they have you know kind of. Almost like uh, Casa Bonita in Colorado, <laughs> sort of like interior space has been, you know, just like decorated out to uh, give you this sense of of being like sort of on Main Street but also underground sort of at the same time. Um, it's uh, when it comes to this sort of um, apocalyptic turn, I think that there's a way in which Baker, uh, you know, emerging sort of from the personal spiritual darkness of prison, like I think that really inflected his own imagination in a certain way and i think that he ended up coming to see you know like the persecution he felt he had undergone at the hands of the media and the investigators who brought down his ministry um, i think kind of turned him against the mainstream american culture in a certain way i think that he um has regarded the past uh several decades of cultural change um with uh, you know a lot of um anger and suspicion and um, I think it makes sense that the way forward for him to sort of refound the utopian vision that he originally had for heritage is to, uh, yeah, is to embrace sort of the cleaning of the slate. The idea is, you know, like this, you know, people would be enabled by him and by his wares to, yeah, as he said, to go underground and then reemerge after, you know, like the alarms have gone off and after we've hit the reset button on civilization and those people would sort of inherit the earth in a way. Um, I think that far more than than judgment, there's sort of a uh, maybe kind of sublimated longing for the open frontier. And I think that the only way to achieve that, apart from going to space, is, is you know, through just unimaginable um, violence and destruction. And I think that there's a way in which uh, embracing the specter of that is one way and preparing to, you know, sort of survive, even though none of us know what that can mean, is one way of holding on to the hope for um, a world in which it's possible to live in the kind of freedom that I think Baker desired for people, you know, coming to Heritage to come and be among their own people and to, you know, feel as though they were really at home and away from an outer world that threatened them.
0: Uh, It's really fascinating that you say that because we had a a guy not too long ago, um, Tad DeLay, who has a new book uh, out called Against about evangelicalism where he sort of pathologizes evangelicals as, as basically longing for destruction or disaster. It's kind of motivated by the production of turmoil. Um, because without that turmoil, your life is sort of without it, it it doesn't get the same meaning from being saved or receiving grace or something. Uh, if it doesn't have that, that big debt of, of horror or terror. Um, and yeah, I guess it seems like Jim Baker is sort of feeding into that in some way. Um, I guess as we come to a close, uh, we're coming up at the, the bottom of the hour here. Um, I mean, do you see that kind of story as related to politics? Or do you feel like Jim Baker is um, maybe an, an oddity who has some resonances or some explanatory power for the current moment, but is, is still ultimately kind of cartoonishly beyond the pale or on the margins? You know, how exactly are we to evaluate maybe what Jim Baker tells us about the present moment and, and evangelicalism's relationship to politics in that way?
1: Yeah um there are lots and lots of evangelicals who don't believe in the way that baker does is i guess the first thing i would say um i think that pentecostalism's relationship with evangelicalism is a little bit tricky um to map out correctly um you know uh there's not a lot of i think overlapping readership between say like charisma magazine and christianity today um I I do think that, uh, they share certain traits and attributes. Um, but, uh yeah, I, I, I haven't really thought too much about how, I guess, like Baker in particular is able to hold the mirror up to evangelicals more generally. And he might seem like an oddity to a lot of those folks, even as he articulates things that are certainly, um, I think, uh, deeply ingrained in their own spiritual lives and imaginations. Um, but I think, uh, Like, more importantly, the thing that Baker does is he does, I think, open a window onto a larger Pentecostal and charismatic spiritual world, which I think is still very poorly understood in American media, especially. And even by, um, you know, I guess sort of more pedestrian Protestants who don't really buy into the idea of, you know, like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues and performing miracles who, you know, are maybe openly cessationist or just like kind of like made anxious by people who, really embrace the sort of ecstatic side of um christian spirituality um charismatics as i said before uh among charismatics generally there's a a huge amount of support for trump and it has to do with his having you know essentially become a sort of prophesied for figure um in the lead up to the election and um Baker had on his show, I mentioned the article Paula White um, with her husband, Jonathan Cain, coincidentally keyboardist from Journey, but Paula White and other people um, who are similar to her have very large online followings in many cases um, and are plugged into poorly understood networks of um, Pentecostal and charismatic churches, and they just think in very, very different terms about the current American political situation. And um, you know their enthusiasm um, really, I think, uh, has animated a lot of uh, the folks who have turned out um, in support of Trump at the polls. Um, I don't, uh, I wouldn't be able to, you know, quantify the meaning of that support. I suppose, but um, charismatic forms of Christian faith are certainly on the rise worldwide. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. The types of hope and consolation. Um, Pentecostalism and charismatic forms of faith, um, offer, uh, you know, those are, are real and they're precious, um, to people who are in very, very difficult, uh, circumstances materially. And, um, it, uh, you know, it's a movement that doesn't prioritize, uh, doctrinal formulation. It's, you know, classic sort of spiritual enthusiasm and, uh, Ronald Knox's sense. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the networks are largely informal, um, but they're, uh, you know, growing more and more powerful. Uh, one church that I did some reporting on Bethel church in Redding, California, um, they, uh, explicitly take up, uh, civic institutions as part of their mandate for evangelism. And also their growing sort of um, political agency locally, and they've uh, installed people who are sympathetic to their aims at different levels of, um, government locally. And, um, they're also well-connected and, um, other areas. And, uh, they see sort of capturing the mountain of, of culture as being an essential part of, the um, you know, like the mandate for their ministry. And uh, that's the sort of thing that Baker kind of points to. There's something here that's, uh, you know, like a little bit unnerving and it's kind of anarchic and it's, um, incredibly compelling. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot happening there that I don't think, um, uh, is very well understood. That's very relevant to the current political situation. And I think, um, you know, uh, people who, who take Trump to be the realization of prophecy, um, you know, that, that ends up, uh, requiring a different kind of allegiance and support than, you know, uh, your average citizen would offer to someone who's been democratically elected is what I'll say about that.
2: Yeah, that's a really helpful nuance. Um, Well, over the past few weeks, we've been trying to tell the story of evangelicalism and um, how it works out and how it works its way out in politics. And I think uh, through Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, you've really given us some um, helpful nuance and wrinkles to the story that we've been telling. Um, Man, I am so interested and um, I I think you get it right when you talk about enthusiasm and the way that it works out sort of non-doctrinally. Um, And how that uh, definitely does lend itself to creating these um, pretty big uh, political but religiously fueled uh, networks of power. And that is pretty wild. So anyways, thanks a lot for like writing this essay and um, uh, talking to us with it. Um, It's really helpful and uh, cool. So I hope everyone out there goes and uh, reads it.
1: Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate you guys having me on. uh, Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, I should say, Martin, also at the end, as we sign off here, if people wanted to find more of your material or uh, wanted to read some more of your stuff, how would they do that?
1: Hey, uh I keep an online portfolio where you can find clips and other work that I've done, um, anything from journalism, essays, reviews, criticism, etc. And you can find that at martinwendaljones.contently.com. And Martin is spelled with a Y.
2: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you know you did, you loved it, um, send your checks to us and we'll send you that big box of macaroni. That's uh, that's code language for please support us on Patreon. If you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Um, if you can't do that, that's cool too. Then you should just leave us a nice iTunes review on the old iTunes or uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll take your reviews on any platform. We're not picky. Uh, cool. So, uh, thanks to Martin Wendell Jones again. Um, check out his stuff. He's a great writer and, uh, a great analyst, um, and storyteller, I would say. Uh, cool. So, um, thanks also to the Jim Baker show, uh, for letting us steal some weird content from them for the, uh, the intro. We didn't ask them, um, but it's probably okay. And also thanks to Tammy Fay Baker for this extremely good, uh, tune for our outro music uh, this is Tammy Faye Baker enough is enough to take us out see you next week